My name is Colum Flynn and you're listening to the To The Point Podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of the To The Point podcast with me, Kian McNicholas, and on today's episode I sit down for a chat over Zoom with journalist, producer and broadcaster Colm Flynn, speaking to me all the way from the beautiful Rome in Italy. Colm speaks about his time in RTE, making the big move over to New York, cold calling the BBC and an insight into the lavish lifestyle as a TV reporter in Rome. You can hear Colm on his new podcast called the Colm Flynn Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts and much, much more. So without further ado, here is the interview with Mr. Colm Flynn. Brilliant, Colm, brilliant. So Colm, I'll start off by asking yourself to start yourself off by just telling people who might know who you are, just who you are and what you do. <laughs> that means everybody, Keen. Uh, my name... <laughs> My name is Colm Flynn. I'm from the Banner County, County Clare, and I am living here in Rome, which is also called the Eternal City. And before this, I lived in New York City, which of course is called the Big Apple. And I'm a TV reporter and radio working for a network here called EWTN, which is this global Catholic television network. And I also report uh, into programs and make documentaries and special programs for the BBC World Service. And I still do stuff for RTE. I have a nationwide program on next week about a guy who's in the Olympics and um, yeah, bits here and there for different networks. Keen, whoever will take me, I will appear on air on their network. That's how it goes. <laughs> Class. And um, I will get into that a bit later, but I just start off with a quick game that I do with all my guests and it's called an opinion on game. So I'll just give you a few topics and you give your thoughts or your opinion on them. Um, so I set off with an easy one, right? Um, what's your opinion <laughs> on the media landscape at the moment? Oh, okay. Well, that is kind of a, an easy one. My opinion on the media landscape is that there's this reporter in Rome who's doing amazing work on all the different... No, my uh, opinion <laughs> on the media landscape is that it is changing so much. It is uh, diversifying. It is becoming less about traditional channels like RTE and BBC and it is becoming more about social media it is becoming more about Snapchat news TikTok I have a friend who works for NBC in New York and he started their first ever news program just for Snapchat called Stay Tuned and it has millions of viewers so less and less people are watching traditional television what we call linear broadcasting they're watching more on demand so that is all changing in terms of the technology, but then also I think a big issue now is trust in the media. Uh, with Trump's presidency and with the rhetoric of fake news, um, you know, some people would say warranted and a valid statement. Other people say it is hocus pocus. But I think now, especially when I look across at the United States where I lived for five years, um, there is a battle for truth in the media, who to believe, who not to believe. When you have CNN having an agenda, Fox, there are new networks starting, trying to be in the middle somewhere. So I think now is a very challenging time to be in media, in the media landscape, but also a very exciting time for people like you starting out because they, people are hungry for truth, they're hungry for good reporting. And mm. uh, that's my opinion. Answer number one. 
But you certainly have adapted to the new media with the digitalization of everything, basically, because I know uh, I was listening to a podcast you've done, and basically you started uh, the video radio clips quite early on, 2009 or whenever. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, and you did your research, that's great. I When I joined RTE out of school, it was in 2009, and it was in the middle of the recession. And RTE told me, we are not hiring anybody because we have a hiring freeze. Any internal jobs will have to go to people who are already staff. Fine. But there was a new show called The John Murray Show. And because it was a new radio show on Radio 1, which is their flagship channel, they said, Cullen, we can keep you for one month to help out. But I had been making videos since I was a kid. And so when I went into the radio station, Radio 1, it was just second nature to me that if we had a band coming in or we had Victoria Beckham or Tom Jones or a big star... I would just say to the producers, well, okay, well, I'll bring in my video camera and we'll make a video for YouTube and for Facebook. Now, now it seems so obvious, but at the time, this was kind of new, in, especially in RT Radio. Nobody was doing it. They were doing it over in 2FM a small bit, but in Radio 1, nobody. So they said, yeah, that's great, do that. And so when a band would come in, they would perform on the radio. I'd be there beside them making a video. I would go upstairs and as soon as we went off air, I would get the audio I would from the radio station, sync it up with the video so it sounded great. I'd put it up onto YouTube or Facebook. And uh, the bosses started looking at this saying, wow, that looks really good. That's great. And it went from being a kind of a cool, cute thing that I was doing when the views, the video started getting more viewers than there were listeners to the radio show. Then they started saying, wow, look, a million people watch this video 330,000 listen on the radio but a million watched it online and I was in there for five years then that was kind of my calling card and um, you know you know you have to have something special and unique and something to offer when you're trying to break into this industry and that was mine and then it became the norm now they're doing it all the time you're obviously working in Rome now covering the Vatican and the Catholic Church I guess what is your opinion what are your thoughts on the Catholic Church and its current state <laughs> Keen, how long have you got? How much tape do you have to record? Because I could stay here for a long time. Uh, how to answer that question? Uh, my thoughts on the state of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is, you know, it's here in Rome. They call it the Eternal City because it goes back 2,000 years, the Church. It has been through ups. It has been through downs. My friends say to me now, how can you be a Catholic and how can you report on the Church when there's so much scandal and this and that? The Catholic Church is full of human beings and human beings are flawed. There have always been scandals. Whenever you have money, you have power, you will have corruption, you'll have scandals. So that's not new. But um, what I think, the, I think the church is in a good place right now. Uh, the last couple of decades have been very difficult with all the abuse cases that have come out. Uh, I hope that they're all being taken care of now and the people are getting justice who need to get justice. The victims and their families are being looked after. But it's like anything with a, with a, a massive church. A lot of people, I meet people here, I think, that are great members of the Catholic Church, others not so much. But I, I'm, I've been so lucky, Keen. The last 10 years, I've got to travel the world for the BBC or for RTE or for EWTN. I have been er everywhere. And in any country I have gone to, I always see the Catholic Church there doing great work. We went to Angola in West Africa, a very corrupt, very poor country. Uh, we went to this school and this shelter to take 
young prostitutes off the street and care for them, give them food, give them clothing, run by these amazing nuns. In South Africa, we went there in 2012 for Nationwide to do a program about these Irish nuns who went over looking after the black community during apartheid when nobody was allowed. The mixing of white and black was not allowed. I could go on and on. Ecuador, the same. We went and did a documentary over in Chernobyl about the nuclear disaster. It was a, a Christian brothers helping them. So as disheartened as you can be when you read the headlines about the church, I think that is a bit of media distortion. Good news is not news sometimes. You don't often hear the great news stories coming from the Catholic Church. And I've been lucky I've seen them over the past 10 years. So there's a lot of bad, of course, there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. But on balance, I think it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful church that does mm. great work all over the world. If the Catholic Church, Keen, were to disappear tomorrow, for example, they have 47,000 schools in Africa. You would have a lot of people who would not be educated, a lot of people who would go hungry, and a lot of people who wouldn't get health care. Um, anyway, it's yeah, a complicated exactly. question, but uh, that's my mm. that's my hot take. Mm. And you mentioned there about reading headlines. We've certainly read a lot of headlines about Black Lives Matter and the riots that happened around this time last year. And you were in New York for this. Um, you were there. What was it like uh, actually being there? It was quite surreal because the New York City was, of course, and is one of the busiest cities in the world. And for five years, I was so used to walking through its avenues and streets and just you would hear the the orchestra of the sirens and people shouting. It's just constant wall of sound and noise. And then when the pandemic hit, you could walk around. We were media, so we were allowed to go out and walk around and film. Other people were on lockdown and the whole city is empty. And it, it was just, it, w- it would send shivers up your spine because you would walk down in front of the um, New York Public Library, the Empire State Building, and there's nobody around. So it was there was eeriness in the air already and this surrealness. And then Black Lives Matter happens. And I remember sitting in my apartment in Brooklyn and watching the TV, the live helicopter shots of these huge crowds of people protesting and there was some rioting along the way and there was stuff being smashed and broken and police cars being burnt out. And I was looking at it saying, oh, look, they're going from Manhattan over the Brooklyn Bridge. They're heading towards uh, where I was living in uh, Bedstein, Brooklyn. So it was just such a surreal time. And then I went up to the rooftop with other people from the apartment and we watched them go by uh, the, the protests. Um, you know, I think uh, Black Lives Matter, of course, uh, who is not for equality and everybody having an equal chance at life regardless of the color of your skin but i think and i think everyone will say this you know it's so politicized the whole black lives matter movement i felt became more about politics than it did about helping black people which i find disappointing and i look even at my own friends on facebook or people i follow not my friends but people i would follow on facebook and twitter the people who seem to be the loudest about black lives matter and shouting for the change and condemning you if you were not posting the right thing or saying the right things what have they done since uh, to help the lives of black people in New York? Have they gone up and volunteered at an old black school in Harlem or the Bronx? I don't think so. So I think a lot of it was just a social media trend. A lot of it was about politics. Um, I commend the people who did have the, the right intentions at heart and who were really trying to make a difference. But I think there was a lot of people who, who were not. Yeah, it's a lot of virtue signaling involved in that. And it's, 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 it's quite trendy 
uh, we saw oh yeah like a lot of people with Instagram put out the, the actual blackout grid does it mean anything are you really calling for change are you taking action not really it's awful it's these you know and of course again I don't want to sound like a, a pessimist or anything but a lot of people I saw putting up the square and they were getting on to me saying Colin put up the square put up the square put up the square but I didn't feel like I needed to put up a square. Mm. If anyone goes to my website, you'll see that before Black Lives Matter, I was doing many reports on people in the black community about their stories. I wasn't waiting until it was trendy for a week or two. But the people again, who I thought were really loud about it, and as you said, virtual signaling, uh, you know, have they, did they ever try and do something before this to help the lives of, of black people? And everyone knows that, like in New York where I lived, you go up to um, the, the Bronx, or to Harlem, or to parts of Brooklyn or Queens, there are very underprivileged areas where there are schools, there are prison services that need volunteers that are predominantly uh, inhabited by black people. Did they ever go up there and volunteer or do something? I'm going to say no. Have they done something since it's been popular? I'm going to say no as well. So I think a lot of it was a bit, um, yeah, as you said, it was it was a bit much. It was a bit of a social media trend. But that's the way a lot of things are going now. They turn into a massive social media movement. And there isn't a lot of critical analysis from young people to, to stop, go back, look at it and say, OK, what's this really about? Do I need to post this black square? Can I support in a different way? Yes, you absolutely can. Mm. What has it been like for yourself as a journalist covering that and uh, you, you moved to Rome later on that year and you've worked throughout COVID-19 and you described how it was in New York, but how did you find working through that? It was, I, fi I find it a bit guilty, Keen, saying that we became busier when a lot of my friends around me were in an awful position whether they should stay in New York or go back to Ireland and a lot of people I knew lost their jobs because New York became the global epicenter, we were under such demand to get content back. So RTE, all of a sudden, were looking for a nationwide, not a nationwide report. I would normally make for them maybe five or six minutes. Cullen, we want a full half hour nationwide show, which we would normally work on for weeks. Today's Wednesday, we want it by Monday. So you've got five days to research, shoot, edit, and deliver this half hour of primetime television. People need to know how their families are, how the Irish community are getting on. So it was a bit of a blur for us. Every single day, myself and my cameraman, Patrick Leonard, we were out uh, interviewing the Irish community, telling their stories, just sending it back as fast as possible to RTE. Uh, then the next day or that night, we could be on German television, doing a, a report for German TV, for French television, uh, or for BBC. So it was just surreal, but it was crazy for us because we were able to go places that other people were not allowed. So we went up to a funeral home in Pelham, which is just north of New York City, and we were able to film the Irish funeral director who was being swamped with phone calls and doing his best to keep up with everybody who was getting in touch. But just to be there with him and to watch him and see the bodies come in, bodies, uh, more bodies, more bodies, uh, him trying to find room for them in his funeral home. That was really surreal. And it, at the time, we didn't take it in because, you know, Keen, when you're in work mode, we were just thinking, OK, we need to get this shot. We need to have we got all the elements we need for the, to tell this story. Is there anything we're forgetting to ask him before we go? So we were under such pressure to deliver. It was only afterwards kind of looking at it on television and watching it with the rest of the country 
uh, myself and my cameraman, I remember we watched the Nationwide special we made and we sat back and we had just delivered it to RT a few hours beforehand. It was, we cut it so tight and we were literally sweating and we sat back, uh, had a bottle of beer, turned on TV, turned on RT and watched it uh, with everyone else back in Ireland. And we were like, wow, that's crazy. Look at those guys who were in that. Oh, that's us. We're in doing that. It was just, uh, the whole thing was surreal. Wow. Wow. And I want to talk about your early career. So you mentioned that you were, before the interview, that you were messing around when you were young, you were doing videos, shooting videos. And um, when was the first kind of spark? When was the first interest? They said, well, I want to become a journalist. I want to become a broadcaster. That's a good question. I think it was when I, I remember watching, <laughs> my friends always laughing at me for this, but I remember watching the Eurovision Song Contest. I still love the Eurovision Song Contest, but I remember when I was younger, being like 10 or 11 or something, watching this big show on television and just understanding that it was being broadcast across all of Europe, the whole continent, we're watching this one thing. I was fascinated by the lights and the cameras and the idea of this broadcasting just so wide and far. And then my dad had an old video camera. Something happened to it, it wasn't working. He gave it to me, I started using it, got it working again. And fr from the moment I got my hands on that little video camera, I just knew, I didn't understand then, oh, I wanna be a reporter. I just knew I wanna play with this camera all the time. I wanna make videos. I want to ask people questions, play the tape back. And then as I got older, eh, for Christmas, I would ask Santa for bits of editing equipment. And for my birthday, I would get different bits of editing gear. And then I realized, okay, I can like put pictures together and music. And then I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. I can interview you, Keen, and you can tell me your story. Then I can put it all together and make it look and sound really good. And I can show it to other people. And then when I found out you can get paid for this and make a living, I was like, this is the dream. Why doesn't everyone do this? This is amazing. What course did you study in college? Was this broadcasting or journalism? Yeah, I went to Tala to the IT and I studied audiovisual media, which mm. is TV and radio studies. So went there for four years. But really keen in this game, it doesn't really matter what you study. I hate saying that. But for television and radio, it's a bit different for print. But you do not, in general, have to have a media degree. You really don't. When I joined RTE and when I was in working with the BBC and now EWTN, not one person ever asked me what I did in college or to show me the degree. Each time, now I never did it the conventional way. I never went for a job interview and this and that. I would always start small pitching reports, get to know producer. Hey, Cullum, that was a good report you did for us last month. We need another one. Give us two more. Why don't you come in and work for us for a while? Hey, here's a year's contract. Here's two. It was always like that. But it was always the case, and with the BBC and with the Good Morning America in the States that I did some reports for, it was always like, okay, you want to be a reporter? Show us previous reports. Show us what you've done. BBC Radio, you want to do a radio show? Send us a clip of you doing a radio show somewhere else. Send us your story idea. I've never been asked once, well, what did you do in college or what degree hmm. did you get? It's almost like, show us if you can do what you're saying you want to do. You want to be a cameraman? Don't show us your degree. Agree. Show us your showreel. Uh, you want to host our podcast, Keen, on the BBC? You do a podcast already? Send us that and let us listen to it. Um, so that's the biggest piece of advice I would give people. You know, study media, you learn a lot. You learn about media law, defamation. 
you learn about the mechanics of putting stuff together but there's no nothing stopping you from learning that outside of college and you know a lot of people who work in RTE mm. have studied law have studied science have done something completely different so it's always good to have a few different strings to your bow yeah exactly and where did you start actually breaking into the industry in my local radio station Clare FM which is a great place for people to start because mm. local radio need people normally they have a high turnover of people people go to local radio they move on somewhere else um, so there's always the door is always open in local radio more than it is in national radio so I kept getting on to Claire FM and Lee Moshe was the boss and one day he gave me a break and he said Cullum I was in uh, fifth year in school so I was around 16 or 17 he said come in you can make tea for the morning show but like the show that you were on a Midwest Tommy show so I was going around making tea for the presenter. I would go out in the street and ask people questions with the mic. And they thought, okay, this guy is okay. He can ask questions. He's not messing up. And they let me hang around. But I, every time they would call me and say, hey, can you come in on Saturday? Because we have this special thing on. I would say yes. No matter what I was doing, I would say yes. And then when they needed someone to present a, a show because the presenter was off sick and they needed someone to fill in, how about that guy Cullum? Maybe he could do it. And I would do it. And it would be terrible, Keen. I would think it was really good, but it was a terrible radio show I would do. But I could do it. And I was a safe pair of hands. So they gave me more shows, more shows. And then they gave me my own weekend show on a Saturday and a Sunday, four hours each day. And I did that all throughout college. And that's where I learned most of what I know about radio. For four years, eight hours of live broadcasting every weekend anything that went wrong you had to fix it yourself because in local radio you don't have big teams so if there was a technical issue i had to fix it if there was an issue with the script i had to fix it with the guest couldn't turn up i had to think of something else and um, so it was great you know I, I loved it and what a what a job to have in college so i did that for four years and then i left joined rte and did the same thing again just went in as an intern. If they asked me to come in at midnight, I said yes. There was a time in RTE where I was working um, on the breakfast show. I had to be in at 4.30 in the morning. I was presenting the breakfast show. I was on at 5.30. I would finish at 7. I would go up 7 a.m., go upstairs, have a cup of tea. I would work on the John Murray show until 3 p.m. And then after that, I would work on children's radio until around 6 p.m. And I would go home and then I would go to bed and I would do it all again. But that's what you have to do sometimes. And it stood by me, I think. I just want to go back to when you were at Claire FM. Was the aim, right, I'm going to go run the radio route that I was on and continue that in RTE? Or is it more open-minded? I want to do a bit of TV. I want to do a bit of radio. Yeah, I always wanted to work in TV as well. But not like in the States. In the States, of course, they have lots of local television. In Ireland, we just have local radio. So I knew that trying to get into RT television when you're 16 it would just be impossible. So I started in radio with always the aim of, I'll go to Dublin, I will study in Dublin. The only reason I wanted to study media in Dublin was to be close to RTE so that I could start hounding them and looking for a job. And then I got into RT radio. And then when I was in radio, I kept getting in touch with them, um, producers and television. And the great thing is, Keen, I would just find, I loved Nationwide, I loved the Today Show. So I would find out who's the producer on Nationwide. Okay, his name is Owen Ryan. Send him an email. Hey Owen, I work in radio, um, you work in TV. Can I meet you in the canteen in the middle at some lunch? 
and you just hound them enough and eventually they say yes and I would go and I would say hey I want to do this for you I want to do that and eventually they'd say okay we'll give you a chance so the aim was always yeah to work in TV and radio and um, mm. I of course I didn't know back then when I was in Claire FM how it would all change to uh, online being like such a, a prominent part of what we would do as well yeah and you spent five years in RTE what was it like actually getting in the door to RTE at, at first it was very hard because again there are a lot of people who want to work there there are very few jobs but I didn't get in a traditional way I didn't go for a job interview again it started with me just helping out a bit and then helping out some more at the start working as an intern for free and then getting a short contract for a month then a longer one for three months but you know it, it taught me that um, because I wasn't going in as a staff member the traditional route that if I wanted to stay there in RTE for the five years that I did, I had to make myself valuable and I had to make them want me. And uh, I did that by doing all the video stuff for radio. I was doing shows on uh, RTE Junior Radio, which was one of their digital channels. Uh, I would do reports for Nationwide. So I made myself valuable. You have to make yourself in a way that if they imagine tomorrow, this guy will be gone tomorrow. Who's gonna do that video stuff? Who'll do those reports? We've come to kind of depend on that. And that's how I made myself. Now, of course, there were some producers, like a, a woman called Margaret Curley and Anna Letty. These were senior producers who really um, liked what I did. And they fought my corner with management and said, we need this guy, we need to keep him. And having contacts like that who will fight for you in a big organization when you're starting out is just invaluable. So it was very difficult, but it's not impossible. People think this is like RT is this big, uh, organization that's full of nepotism i never had any family working there i didn't know anybody working there but i, I can get in and if i can get in keen to rte trust me anybody can get in anybody if they let a sucker like me in and you <laughs> and you didn't five years to RTE. and by the way thanks thanks for not uh, disagreeing with that <laughs> you're I, like I yeah disagree. buddy you're right <laughs> if, if they um, let you on the bbc we can all get on <laughs> <laughs> but you've done the five years at rte why did you leave, may I ask? I left because the John Murray show came to an end. So it was kind of a natural progression. It was kind of bittersweet. And, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about anything out of turn because John Murray, who was the presenter of the show, who still works in RTE and is a very talented broadcaster. Um, he used to present the business. Then he did the John Murray show. Now he's a sports journalist, sports broadcaster. But John was suffering from depression. And he spoke about this on the radio. For the first couple of years, everything was going great and the show was growing, extremely popular. And for me, working on it, you know, I was a small part of the team. John was the, the star of the show, a big team of producers. Um, I was a small part of it and I was doing reports for the program and I was helping out in any way that I could. But it, out of college, to, to join a show like that out of university was just, it was like a dream come true. We went to New York, did live shows from New York. We went to the Oscars in Los Angeles. We did all these great things on radio. And because it was a new show, the bosses in RTE, in fairness to them, and Marie Power and, and the likes, they said, okay, the show can try things out, make mistakes, you know, do things that we don't normally do on the radio. So we were doing all sorts of crazy things and we were getting away with it. It was fantastic. But then towards the, when the five years went on, John's depression started to take hold again and he took time off from the program Miriam McCallaghan filled in 
he took six months off he came back but it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the same he was finding it difficult it, the depression was affecting him in the mornings he went on air and spoke about this and eventually in the end John decided he'd had enough that he wanted to finish the show try different things in RT so that was it after I didn't want I would have stayed happily working there until today I loved it so much but you know in this game you have to always kind of stay fresh you have to be reaching for the next thing maybe I became very comfortable there for the five years even though I was doing stuff for Nationwide and everything and um, I remember when the John Murray show was finished I was devastated I was thinking what will I do this had become part of my identity working on this program every day and when the show finished the there was no room in other programs for me in RTE so RTE were saying to me well what do you want to do come up with an idea and come back to us and we'll see if we can work it out but I went and I came to them with some ideas and they weren't crazy about them and then they came they said to me what about these ideas and I wasn't crazy about them so we couldn't really agree on something and then Derek Mooney who's a great broadcaster and someone you should have on your podcast and he would do it he um he gave me great advice we went for dinner and he said Cullum you're angry you're upset you don't know what to do get this emotions the emotions that you're feeling and channel them into something productive so tomorrow call the BBC World Service you know the BBC has lots of different channels but the World Service is seen as like the jewel and the crown of the BBC and he said call them tell them you want to do reports for them tell them you have ideas just like you did when you started RTE and I said but I don't and he said I know you don't but call them and tell them you do and that will put the fire under you so I it, it's always nerve-wracking to cold call someone but the next day I remember looking up BBC switch line the main number I called spoke to an operator and I looked at the schedule on the world service I saw a show called Outlook which did it was a show that did a lot of reports about amazing people and I thought, well, that's something I've kind of done before, reports. I know a lot of amazing people. I'll call them. So I called the operator, put me through to Outlook. Oh, well, that's a big show. Who do you want to talk to on the program? I said, one of the producers. There's a lot of producers. Which one do you want to speak to? I said, hey, who's on the list? And they went down through the names. And I said, stop. What was that guy's name? Richard Hooper. I said, put me through to him. And they put me through to this guy. He answered. I said, hi, Richard, my name's Colin Flynn. I'm a reporter and broadcaster from Ireland. I have a couple of ideas for reports for your program. Uh, how can I send them to you? And he said, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, we, we don't, we're not really looking for new reporters, but if you send them to me, I'll take a look. And because I had made that connection and I'd spoken to him, he felt obliged to listen to me. So I sent him an email and I sent him five ideas. I said to him on the phone, I'll have them by you. I'll get them to you by tomorrow. So when I hung up, I thought, okay, I better come up with ideas. I had no ideas. And I forced myself to send five ideas and an example of radio I'd done before for RTE. And he came back like a week later and said, your five ideas, Colm, thank you. First one, no. Second one, no. Third one, no. Fourth one, no way. Fifth one, okay, do it. We like that one. Make it short. So I was like, wow, I'll be on the BBC World Service. So I did the report. It was with a man in, uh, in Offaly who was in a wheelchair, who's a film director in Ireland, just a great inspirational person, went out, interviewed him, sent it to the BBC, and just like in Claire FM, just like in RTE, they went, okay, it wasn't the award-winning radio, but it, it sounded fine, the quality was good, 
you delivered what you said you would on time we think we can depend on you send us more ideas so i sent more ideas and they would take them they would take them and then keen the time comes when the tide turns a bit and you find your phone is ringing and it's bbc and they're saying hey Cullum, we've got a, an empty show next thursday what have you got for us can you give us something or else hey Cullum, we need someone to go to argentina for us in a week to interview this really big story we can depend on you can you go and that's the way that's what i do now so now I was on the phone to the BBC this morning. I called them. Here's a story I want to do. This morning they called me. Hey, we have a budget. We have a, a gap in the schedule. Do you think you can do a half hour program on whatever it is? So, um, yeah, and, and that's how that's how it works. Yeah. Well, and you are you enjoying the freelance work more? You're like you're working for yourself. You're, you're on a deadline. You're, you're kind of enjoying it a bit more. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Because if you're successful, it's on you. If you fail, it's on you. Um, now, of course, I'm simplifying a very complicated industry and a very cutthroat industry, but it's not for everybody, the freelance world. But I, I always found it so energizing, especially when I moved to New York. When I remember when I first went to New York, I stayed in a hotel for six months in Manhattan. It was crazy, but I was neurotic about being successful. I would get up early every morning. I would go to this diner on Fifth Avenue, the same on Sixth Avenue, the same one every morning. And I would get in really early. So I felt like I was ahead of the, the, the crowd, maybe 7.30 in the morning. And I would sit on my laptop and I would just start banging out emails. I was on LinkedIn. I was looking at uh, NBC, ABC's websites, finding out who producers were, sending them ideas, sending the same idea to 10 networks. But there was such excitement because at the end of the day, you know, I might get 10 rejections, but then one person might come back and say, love that idea. I, I, I'm not saying we're doing it, but I like that idea. And that to me, if I got a response from someone who liked my idea, was a sign to me, I'm on the right path, I'm on the right track, I'm doing the right thing. And then the more I stayed in New York, uh, I got into these places who were very tough to get into. I sold them some reports and ideas, and I just became so much busier. And now I'm here in Rome working for EWTN, kind of on a full-time basis, still technically contractor, but I'm doing it here for EWTN and for BBC Two. Um, it is great. It's great excitement. And you've such freedom because, Keen, if you were a freelance and you had an idea, you wanted to do a story from your hometown. And if you were working full time for RTE and they said, Keen, great idea, but we don't want to do it because we don't have the budget, we're not interested, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of it. You can't do it. But if you're freelance and if RTE come back and say, we don't want to do it, you say, fine, no problem. I'll send you some more ideas next week. TV3 might want it. TG Carr. Uh, Radio France, Deutsche Welle, ABC Australia, BBC World Service, Al Jazeera, Russia Today, France Caton Sank. There's and there's more. The list is growing all the time. There are so many outlets, and they all need content. So yeah, it's great. It's great fun. And the more you get to know, the more international your stories become. The more you get to travel, uh, it's amazing. You obviously mentioned what you're doing in Italy now in Rome, covering the Vatican with IWTN. What is that like and what is a day in the life of a TV journalist in Rome? It is great fun. I, this morning I got up early. I went for a run down by the Tiber River looking at the beautiful architecture and the statues and the sun coming up in the city. 
what a backdrop to be living but then i go to my favorite cafe i sit and have breakfast i open my laptop my producer from the office will email me and say hey here's what i think we're going to cover today uh, the pope made an announcement about a terrorist attack in baghdad iraq yesterday Colum, you went to baghdad with the pope uh, two months ago on his historic trip so i think this is something you should cover today so I'll, I'll get back to him and say yes i agree or maybe I, i've seen something else online and say well maybe we should do this because the pope has been talking about world disability day or something and this is an important thing to do but we'll agree on a topic normally in the morning and then i'll start looking at articles reading stories maybe making some phone calls typing my script uh, I'll do that most of the morning and work ahead to other stories we might be doing later in the week or for visiting the Vatican Observatory the following week and I need to research that. So I'll do that and then, um, yeah, in the evening because of the time difference with Washington DC, I will go to the TV crew where I just came from to do this and they'll have set up the camera and the lights and everything in front of the Vatican. They will have the prompter ready the script I wrote in the morning will have been checked by the producer in the office here to make sure that it's all correct. They'll have sent it to Washington DC where the team <clears throat> in the US will have checked it again and approved it, said this is okay. They send it back to the producer. We make some final last minute changes and then we go live in front of the Vatican and I, I talk about the news. And then in the evening, we could be working on a podcast or a radio interview or something, but uh, every day is different. Tomorrow we might not be doing something in front of the Vatican. I might have to go and do an interview in a, a part of the Vatican or a different place around Rome. Mm. So uh, it's always fun. And because the Pope is traveling now again, uh, I went to Iraq with the Pope a few months ago. Last week I was in Israel because the Vatican sent a pilgrimage there. In a few weeks we're going to New York and then Hungary and Slovakia, I think, or Slovenia. It's, <laughs> I had to check that. But um, yeah, so it's... It's 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 amazing. It's a fascinating. And have you met the Pope? To, uh, I met him uh, briefly on the plane to Iraq. He came back and he said hello to me, and we had a brief conversation. I showed him a photograph of me interviewing his family in Buenos Aires. That was for the BBC. I said, Pope Francis, I I met your family. Look, here I am with your nephew laughing in a park in Buenos Aires. So he looked at it and he probably thought, Who is this crazy man on my plane? <laughs> Throw him off. Put a parachute on him and get him off my plane. So it was good. And he said to me, how's Keen? I said, Holy Father, Keen is doing okay. He said, I want to hear his confession. I said, okay, I will tell him. So. <laughs> Did you actually confess to Pope Francis? No, if I was going to confess to Pope Francis Keen, we would have needed a long haul flight. Uh, the flight was far too short for that. You know, we would, that would have been, it would have had to have been one of those like long overnight flights to Sydney or something, you know, because I would have to like get the whole list but we just kept it short short and sweet but it's like meeting a president keen when you meet the pope you know the vatican is an independent state it's its own country so before you get on the plane with the pope you know not every anyone is allowed on the plane you're vetted and you, you, only certain people can go on this flight and you're told what you can wear what you can't wear they tell you not to wear white as if I was gonna show up in a white suit head to toe. Like, hey, Pope Francis, I'm like you. So you gotta wear black. And they told us when the Pope comes down, you know, don't jump up and try and enthusiastically shake his hand or clap him on the back that like, you know, you stay seated. You wait for him to greet you first. And it, it's like, it's all these rules and regulations. So you're, you're a bit on edge. I was sitting like this in my seat in the plane, like <sighs> remembering everything I should and shouldn't say. So like when he 
Pope comes around, you're like, hello, Holy Father, nice to meet you. It is, you know, you're remembering everything. But it was just, it was a magical experience. It was great. And even just, just being on the papal flight, everything, the details are beautiful. On the, the table, the, the chair you're sitting on has a little cloth with the Vatican symbol on it. The menu for the food has got the beautiful Vatican logo on it as well. And it's specially made. And they bring around Frere Roches all the time because they're Italian and the guy who owns them is Catholic. They bring around papal wine. We had a great time. It was, mm. But then, of course, we had to work when we got there. And do you see yourself staying in Rome, doing what you're doing for right, the foreseeable future? If my bosses are listening, yes. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll see. You know what? It's, um, I don't think I would stay here forever because I'm not Italian. I don't speak Italian. I'm too stupid to learn Italian. But I think to stay here for a while and the, the network EWTN have been so good to me with bringing me here and looking after me and with the stories they're letting me do and the travel they're just they're you couldn't think of a better employer so they're really wonderful so I'll stay here for another while and um, until they're sick of me or I think that I can't give them any more or do any more for them then I'll move on to the next thing but at the moment um, I love doing it you know I'm even though I'm Catholic and I'm I hope that I'm trying to be a strong Catholic and I'm into my Catholic faith I don't do it as a Catholic journalist I'm I journalist who happens to be Catholic I still try and do the stories as fair as possible and call out the mm. church when it has to be called out but also celebrate the church when it should be celebrated and the people in it uh, so at the moment I'm really enjoying it I'll just finish off with a quick fire round so I'll start off fire um, round fire Don't round <laughs> fires keen have um, the fire extinguisher ready I'll start off with a controversial one who's your favourite broadcaster or journalist <laughs> There's a guy called Keen who's my favorite journalist and uh, he's got this podcast Hot called Club. To The Point. He yeah. is my favorite. There's nothing controversial about that. And next to him, it would be the typical answer that everyone gives. I, I think Gay Byrne was just in a league mm -hmm. of his own. He was outstanding. I remember there was a moment in the Late Late Show. This was before I was born, but it was I saw it on YouTube for a while, but it has disappeared off YouTube. There was a competition like they used to have every week someone people would enter they'd send in their postcards gay burn went up he picked out a postcard out of this case of tens of thousands of postcards live on television they called the number of the person and said hello it's gay burn late late show you're live on air you've won this big prize the lady who answered was the mother of the person who entered and the person who entered was her daughter she had just died in a car car accident two days before that or something like that and the way that Gabe Byrne was able to take what was like a moment up here full of energy and you're on the late show you're winning he was being funny he was being smart to be able to switch the gear in just a fraction of a second to the tone that was needed that made what could have been a very awkward and painful moment for her for the people watching for Gabe Byrne himself it was such a natural moment. He talked to her about her, her daughter. What was your daughter's name? Tell us what happened. His body language. He even like he, he swooped. He stooped down a bit and on the table, uh, he spoke softer. I just thought it was such a master class in broadcasting and having a human connection with someone. Um, and it was you know we all talk about reality TV nowadays. Gabe Byrne used to do reality TV before there was such thing as reality TV. They never, sometimes they didn't know what was going to happen on the Late Late Show. The show used to always run over. 
no, there was never a time when it had to end it. They would just keep it going if it was good. Nowadays, everything is like heavily scripted. Producers talk to guests for a long time beforehand. You know what they're going to talk about. There are very few surprises. Back then, it was real reality television. And I just, I admired and still admire his work so much. Mm. And what is your favorite pastime, Colin? My favorite pastime, I love swimming. I uh, swim. I go for walks around Rome. I, I love sitting in cafes and watching the world go by. I love people. I just love talking to people. So I, whenever I sit in a cafe, I always get talking to the people next to me. If I hear an accent, I just can't help myself. I say, where are you from? Oh, you're from Estonia. I was there. Or you're from Armenia. Um, my favorite pastime is just meeting people and talking to people. As you can tell by looking at me, I look like I've got bone marrow disease. I don't play any sports or anything like that. I would, I would lose in a fight against a fly. So um, my, my hobbies are talking to people and boring people like I've been, like I've been doing right now to you. <laughs> you improvise. <laughs> Again, um, thank you for not disagreeing with me. Just a disclaimer, I do disagree. For sure. <laughs> um, for the record, to the point. For the record, to the point, exactly. Um, what's your biggest advice for young journalists? My biggest advice is be interested in people, be interested in other people's stories and learn the technology from a young age. So mm. learn how to use um, your microphone and your podcast recording equipment, learn how to use a camera. You don't have to be the world's best cinematographer, but if you want to get into radio, learn how to use cameras as well. If you want to get into television and video, learn how to use audio and podcasting as well, because nowadays people expect you to do it all and to do it all well. But as someone said once, and it is true, if you were technical, you know how to edit, you know how to be technical, and you are creative, you know how to tell a story, you know how to speak on microphone, you know how to interview people. If you're technical and creative, you're unstoppable. And I think that's really true. Very true, Zoyce. Um, Are you tea or coffee? Tea. I had four cups of tea already today. Barry's tea. Barry's, Barry's, Barry's. And what is your favorite Italian meal? My favorite Italian meal is cacio e pepe. This beautiful pasta, I will turn into a piece of cacio e pepe soon because I eat it all the time. I'm going to this nice restaurant tonight on a rooftop overlooking Piazza Navona and I'm excited. I'm going in 45 minutes, but I'm excited because they serve cacio e pepe. And when I get there, I will eat cacio e pepe and it will be magnificent. And then I'll have gelato <laughs> afterwards and I'll have some vino and then I'll have tea and it will all be great. Oh, Jesus, you're making us all jealous here. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favorite TV series? I loved the, the last TV series I loved. It was Making a Murderer on Netflix. I thought it was a masterclass again in storytelling. There was 10 episodes about a court case and a trial. And at the end of every program, you just had to go and watch the next one. And just the way they put it together, it was 10 hours of video. They had to edit from like over 100 hours. So 100 hours edited down to 10 hours and they did a masterful job. I cannot watch TV programs like a normal human being because whenever I watch them, I'm thinking about how did they put that together? Why did they put that there? Why didn't they do this? The music is too loud. I watch it like a freak. So um, <laughs> no one wants to watch TV shows with me. But yeah, that was my last favorite one. What was your last favorite one, Keen? Uh, designated Survivor. Have you seen that? I haven't. What's that about? It's about basically uh, there's this politician in the US cabinet and the whole rest of the cabinet gets blown up by this bomb and he's the designated survivor and he's like the housing minister or urban development minister and he's left as the president. 
Keen, that sounds very depressing. I think you need to change what you watch <laughs> on TV. Are you okay? Are you feeling okay? Do you want to talk about I'm, it? I'm, I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you're to invite any five dinner guests to an Italian restaurant that serves your favorite meal, uh, who would they be? Great question. I would invite a dead or alive or both. Dead or alive. Dead or alive. Well, just a disclaimer uh, and to the point, the dead people, obviously, I would want to be living again. I wouldn't want their corpses at the table, but I would invite one Conan O'Brien. Do you know who Conan O'Brien is? The American talk show host? Yes. Conan O'Brien. I would want him there. An Irish comedian who I think is a genius called Francis Higgins, a.k.a. The Viper, a.k.a. Mm. Schlug. Uh, who does Schlug Lingus and Schlug Aaron I think he is just uh, he was in Hardy Books he is uh, just one of the funniest people in Ireland I would want him there I would want Conan O'Brien Gay Byrne at the table just to keep us all in check and to bring a bit of class back to proceedings who would I want um, who would who, who my future wife um, which woman do I want to be my, I'm trying to think here <laughs> who else there's so many people that come Margot to mind Margot Robbie yeah, yeah them there too and uh, Donald Trump Donald Trump for the crack. Just Donald Trump, Conan O'Brien, uh, <laughs> Gay Byrne, and then uh, the girl of my dreams as well. That would be the mm. table. Yeah. And last and question. Keen, you could be there too. And we, we'd have a bit of crack. Exactly. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say my name. <laughs> um, well, that's a given. That's a given. <laughs> exactly. Um, describe yourself in three words. Caring. Ambitious in a nice way and positive